Hello, welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast of podcast by whoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by Who Scored's very own Dan Worth. And we've got Jonathan Wilson, who is well overdue a haircut with us as <laughs> always as well. We're here to preview the weekend action and probably some other nonsense in between as well. And we're going to, well, no Champions League. We're not starting with Champions League, Dan. No Champions League in the running order. No, uh, we wanted to start too early today, so we've not time to get onto it. Uh, I mean, I'll throw it in there. I'll throw it in there, Jonathan. Chelsea, unsurprisingly, knocked out last night. Real Madrid probably playing in first or second gear throughout the whole two-legged affair. How did you see it? Uh, I watched the other game. I watched okay, the good, great start. <laughs> Unbelievable start. <laughs> no, I mean, I had it on the second screen, but yeah, the game was over from the first leg. It was. It looked pretty half pace. I know there was those two chances in the first half of Kante and Kukurea. Um, but I mean, particularly once Real Madrid had scored, it was it was over. But that game was lost in in the first leg. But Milan were were uh, were very good against Napoli. They, you know, they, yeah. they 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 did they did what they've done. Um, well, really since January under Pioli, and uh, you know, January they're a bit leaky, but they've tightened up. And, and Napoli had a lot of the ball, but didn't really create any chances. And then Milan were very dangerous on the break. Giroud missed the penalty, had another good chance before half-time as well as a goal he scored, so they could have been out of sight. So that 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 goal that, that Napoli did finally score in, in injury time, that's the first goal that Milan have conceded in the Champions League since Aubameyang scored against them back in October. I'm so do you know who the, the, only man, the only manager to, to beat Milan in the Champions League this season? Potter. Graham Potter, twice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I must have heard that last night to have to have known that 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 I tweeted away. it. But yeah, maybe I saw it. Maybe I saw it there. Yeah. I mean, bit of nice little throwback though. Milan getting to the latter stages of the of, of the oh Champions Milan derby in the semis is is a great occasion. I mean, it was it was in two thousand and three. I mean, I just started being a journalist then. That was I think that game didn't finish actually. In the end, I think there was uh, crowd trouble and they had to. There's definitely a long stoppage. Uh, I can't remember if they came back afterwards or not, but. Um, but that was when Serie A still, I was still, you know, it obviously faded since its mid nineties peak, but it still felt like the the you know the the, the top league in the world. Um, so it's obviously not at that standing. You'd, you'd you'd fancy whoever wins the other semi, but yeah, Milan derby in the semi, it's a it's a big occasion. Potentially Milan derby. Potentially, not, yeah. Not done and dusted. Not done and dusted. Just, yet, just, no. That tie doesn't feel quite as cut and dry as, as Chelsea Madrid did with with a two goal lead. To me, there's still potential it, something it, might happen. Even though the second leg's in Milan, I, I I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. But Benfica, I was disappointed with in the first leg. They they were yeah. they were not the team they'd been in Enzo Fernandez in the group stage. No, Enzo Fernandez dragged last night as well. Didn't wasn't having a great game, but Chelsea were just they were okay. They, I can see what the plan was, but if, when you've got Havertz up front, you need people going beyond him, and when the people going beyond him are Gallagher and Cantor, I'm just not sure that's a feasible way to score goals. In in all honesty, yeah. Dan, you you enjoy the Champions League? Oh, I can't do two screens at the same time. I have to pick a game, and that that's that. I can't watch two games at the same time, like Jonathan. I'm not I don't. I don't really watch two. I, I watch one, and I got the other one on. Just I'm kind of I, yeah, because I don't know. Somehow your eyes drawn to replays, so you see the replays. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Something in your brain must no, notice when it goes slower. So yeah, yeah. I, I don't really watch two games. Dan, we are. I think we did. I think we did some Champions League predictions last week, and it was it was Kieran who was on. In, in today. Who who do you think is going to win the Champions League? I said Madrid. I think Jonathan said City. <clears throat> well, I mean, before this round, I was saying Napoli. So I'm glad that probably wasn't caught on this podcast. Um, I think City. To be perfectly honest, um, it's about time that they won it. I think, and 
uh, getting the three 0 win over Bayern in the first leg kind of really proves that they're they're ready for it this season. I think. Um, but last night I controversially watched the championship instead. Uh, Whoa! As a, as a Reading fan, I'm I'm monitoring that relegation zone um, with my full attention at the moment. So yeah, that's that's where I was last night. Okay, that does make sense. The fact that you're a Reading fan and you watch the championship and not the Champions League that that does make complete sense. Let's have enough of that then and let's look at Arsenal against Southampton, the first fixture of the Premier League weekend on Friday night. We'll start with you, Mystic Jonathan. <laughs> you, said, you said last week the Premier League title rise was over and that was before Arsenal dropped uh, dropped points at, at West Ham. So I assume you're going to stick with that prediction. It's basically now comes down to, to that game next week. If Arsenal go to City and get something, then they, they, they can still win it. But they've still got the harder run in. And I think you're starting to see now the signs of, of strain on that squad. It's a, it's a small squad uh, compared to cities. And I, I think, you know, you see the real drop-off from Saliba to Holding, for instance. Um, I think you know, the, the way the last two games have gone, that to, to be tuned up in both of them, there's like, slightly different situations in that, you know, going to Anfield is clearly different to going to, to a West Ham team of a battling relegation. You know, poor as Liverpool have been this season. But... It's a similar thing where Arsenal were 2-0 up, seemed to be absolutely cruising, and then as soon as the tide started to turn against them, they, they, they couldn't react. And I sort of, if you think back to the, even that Fulham game, I know they won it easily in the end, where they were 3-0 up inside half an hour, but Fulham did get back into that game. And you sort of thought in that game, if Fulham had scored early in the second half, and they had the chance to do it, that could actually have been a bit twitchy for Arsenal. So I think it is something in the makeup of this team. If they if they get an early lead, they're maybe not quite sure what to do with it. Hmm. Um, whether they should sit on it, or whether they should keep going. I mean, I sort of felt on Sunday that you know if Arsenal just kept going, they could have been three or four up in, in half an hour, and then the game would have been over. Uh, but at the same time, I heard people sort of saying, "Oh, you know, they should have racked up a goal difference." Which, and whenever you hear that, you think ah, something's gone wrong there. That the, I mean, you heard it when. You know, when Liverpool threw away that three-goal lead at Crystal Palace, and everybody said, oh, yeah, if it can get if it can get to five or six and they put pressure on City, you just got to win the game first. And and Arsenal, seemingly, the last couple of weeks, have sort of forgotten how to do that. And I think in both games, they try, having got the lead, they try to slow it down. Um, I think that makes more sense to tactic at Anfield, where the crowd can be such a factor. Whereas at the, the London Stadium... If they could have gone 3-0 up, if they could have put the game absolutely out of sight, so there wasn't just sort of one goal to get back into it, then you might have seen the stadium behave as it had in the defeat to Newcastle, which had been the previous home game, where there's a lot of disappointment, a lot of frustration and fans leaving long before the end. And, and then then you have won it. So I, I, I feel sort of both games, they, they maybe misread the emotion of the game. Um, and, and that is... I guess it's a thing that comes with experience, and uh, you know, as we know, it's not a particularly experienced side. No, I mean, it's worrying to blow two two goal leads in in in, in a week, isn't it, Dan? That, that's going to be very concerning for for the Arsenal fans. They almost won't, won't want to go two 0 up against Southampton, although I do think they'll go on and and win this game relatively comfortably at the, the weekend. But another worrying aspect was the fact that when it got back to two two, didn't really create anything, and I felt Arteta's subs. I always think when a manager's throwing on a load of players and you've got all kinds of different players who don't usually start all on the pitch at the same time, which can happen with, with the five subs. I almost think 
you're better off not making the subs and sticking sticking to what you know because those subs didn't really impact the game at all. In fact, they probably made Arsenal worse. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think when he made those subs, they, they didn't really look like they were making any impact at all. They, they certainly didn't put West Ham under too much pressure. And I never really got the impression that when it was 2-2 that they were going to go on and win that game. Um, in terms of Southampton, though, I think that game is probably the ideal one to have after throwing away two two goal leads. Yeah, they could choose a turn to play this weekend at home. I think it probably would be Southampton, wouldn't it? Yeah, and you'd probably imagine that they will go 2-0 up. So it will be interesting to see what they do on this occasion. But yeah, I think you're right. that they, they should blow Southampton out of the water, I think. If Arsenal finish second, Jonathan, which is which is plausible now and has been plausible for, for a long time, can they still consider the season a success in your eyes? I think so. I mean, yeah, it's possible for two things to be true. So they, they will have gained... Yeah, twenty points, twenty-five points more than they did last season. Well, that's that's it. You can't say that's anything other than a success. You know, if if you if you can add even ten points to what you got the previous season, it's a success. Uh, nobody thought Arsenal would be in a title race. Uh, their aim for this season was to improve, and I, I guess even sort of the very summit of their ambition was getting the Champions League. Well, well they're going to do that. So in, in that sense, it's a success, but. Inevitably, it, it's going to be tinged with with regret. Um, I mean, we're assuming that they do go on to lose it. Maybe they won't, but I, I, I suspect they will. Um, to, to be eight points clear, albeit having played a game more, how often do you get that opportunity? And and I think this maybe is a season where there are fewer challenges than there will be in, in the future. That um, I think the fact, even they took City a little bit of time to work out what they're doing with Holland. It, it gave a team that chance to get ahead. The fact that Chelsea and Liverpool have had such bad seasons, and you, you assume they'll be better next season. The fact that Tottenham have had such a bad season, it, it, albeit that they're, they're constantly fourth or fifth, mystifyingly. Uh, Newcastle presumably will spend more. Yeah, if you think of, yeah, financially, if it's clearly a big seven, you can save the subdivisions in that. Yeah, Manchester United are clearly on, a, on an upward curve. And, and this was a season where, of those seven, Six of the others had problems, two or three of them pretty big problems. So Arsenal don't quite have the financial might of a City or even a Newcastle or, or certainly not Manchester United. Are they going to get that opportunity again? And I don't think they have to do much wrong. Yeah, if, if they play exactly the same as they have this season, next season, I suspect they get fewer points because I think the other teams will be better. So I, I think that will always hang over this season that... Yeah, this this was this was a chance missed, but you can you know getting to a final you know is 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 a great thing in the in the story of a club, and and this is the equivalent of that. You get to the final if you lose the final, well, it's disappointing. It's a chance missed, but you got to the final, and that's the thing that should be celebrated. Yeah, not many people had Arsenal in the top four at the start of the season with, with predictions. I don't recall too many people. No, I didn't at all. Arsenal I think, I, think I had them sixth. So yeah. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm exactly the same. I, think, I might have had them fifth, actually. But yeah, not many people would have even... No one would have called them even being in the title race. But it, at the end of the season, when you've been top for most of the season, I guess if you're an Arsenal fan, it would be tinged with a little bit of regret and a little bit of sadness. And the thing is as well, that it's, it's not even that... I don't know. It, say they'd been in this position and then the last two games, I don't know, maybe they had three or four injuries. It had been a real struggle... Yeah, they hit the post a couple of times. The referee decision had gone against them. That hasn't happened. No. Yeah, they've, they've been tuned up in both of them and they've missed a penalty in one. So there's always going to be that sense of what, what might have been. And, and you know, that, that's not an, un, you know, that, that's, that's an appropriate emotion. But equally, 
it's been a better season than they could have ever expected is an appropriate emotion. Both of those things could be true. Yeah, it's almost strange, isn't it? Because a team can sometimes finish second, but it depends on how you finish second. So if Arsenal had been in City's position and they were the ones doing the chase and then they just fell short, you'd say, oh, they've had a positive end to the season, really unlucky not to win the league. They'll come back stronger next season. But because it's been them that's been the ones that have been top for the whole season, if they drop away, it's probably not looked at in the in the same kind of manner as been a success in some quarters. Yeah, I mean that 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 order of points is a weird thing we have. I mean, I think you see that really obviously with say Brendan Rodgers' time at Leicester, that those two seasons when they finished fifth, the sense was a failure because they'd had Champions League qualification in their grasp and it had fallen away in the last few weeks. Whereas had had the had the results been inverted, had the season you'd gone backwards and they'd had a sort of slow start, but they'd surged through at the end. You'd have been saying, "Oh, well, yeah, what a great season!" Yeah, they 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 came within a game of getting Champions League qualification. They're they're on on the up going into the Europa League, but we we do filter things through the order in which they happen, and, and I, I guess that's that's unfair for two reasons. So one is not all fixtures are the same level of difficulty. That you know, as Patrick Vieira found, if you play a load of big teams in a row, you'd have a run of bad results without necessarily doing too much wrong. Then somebody replaced you has some easier games and they're flying. But also, if you've got a smaller squad, as Arsenal do, as Leicester do, uh, or did, uh, obviously it's towards the end of the season that that the the fatigue and strain start start to tell. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I think we. Pro, I mean, yeah. Say you win your first nineteen games of season and lose the last nineteen. Clearly, something has gone wrong in the middle of that season. But more generally, I think we should probably look look at seasons in the round more rather than being take, too taken by by minor fluctuations of form. Let's look a little bit at Southampton now, Dan. You've got their their highest rated players so far, according to who scored this season. Who fits in where for them? Um, well, it's no surprise that James Ward-Prowse um, tops the list. Um, he's in a 6.94, which, yeah, below seven. So it's probably about right for Southampton's season, to be fair. Um, and I think uh, actually last night there was um news article saying that he's almost definitely leaving, which to be fair is, is not a surprise to any of us. But I think like should Southampton go down, which I absolutely think they will do, um, it could be a bit of a mass exodus for them because although they have been pretty shocking this season, they do have a few players which well are definitely Premier League quality and and, and certainly don't really deserve to drop down to, to the championship. And none more so than James Ward Prowse, I think. Um, a couple of uh, youngsters as well that they've got, like Salisa and Bella Kotchap. Um, I think they can probably fit in to a lower Premier League team, maybe mid-table Premier League team. So they'll probably look, be looking to get out. Um, but the main one is Lavia, I think. It's quite an interesting one. Um, his average rating is 6.58, which, you know, it is not amazing. But I think he, when you watch him, you can see that he's got bundles of potential. And I think, I think he's already been linked with Arsenal. And I th- he's only 19, so... I imagine he's got a Premier League future. But as I said, it's going to be a super interesting one for Southampton because when they inevitably do go down, it will be a completely different squad next season. And again, that means there's no um, no guarantees that they'll be on, on the way back up, I reckon. Jonathan, what would you say James Ward-Prowse's level is? So assuming he, he will, will leave Southampton regardless in the summer, but if they go down, I'd say he's, he's definitely going to leave. Well, what's his level? Um... It's probably Europa League level. Um, I mean, that's a difficult thing to say because I don't. I think once you get beyond City, 
I'm not sure there's a huge amount of difference in the next six. I mean, clearly there have been this season, but you know, if you if you if you're assuming sort of a, a fairly normal recruitment policies and, and non-crazy appointments, yeah, I, I I think it's difficult to to separate second from seventh really. So is he in that tier? Just possibly. I don't know. It's it's always difficult to tell with a player like that because you don't quite know either how he'll respond to being you know a slightly smaller fish in a you know in a bigger pond. Uh, that he's used to being the man everything revolves around. He's used to um you know, I don't want to say his needs being caged because that makes him sound like a diva. And I, 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 nothing I've heard about more price suggests he is a diva. But what I mean is, you, you, if you're Southampton, you naturally play to your strength, and he is your strength. Whereas he would have to accommodate his game to others more at other clubs. And I don't think that's always an, an easy transition to make. Um, I think it's possibly particularly hard for central midfielders who, who are used to kind of running everything. But I mean, clearly, you know, his, his set plays are exceptional. That gives him that little advantage. Can he fit into a, a really sophisticated pressing system as you get at a big club? Truth is, we just don't know. People, you know coaches who work with him every day might have a better idea of that. I think for an outsider, that's, that's very difficult to tell. Is he good enough for Manchester City? Probably not. Is he good enough for one of that next rung? Possibly. Could he go to a team who, you know, really expect to finish eighth or ninth? Well, yeah, I'd say definitely. Would Newcastle make sense for maybe yeah, Liverpool clearly need to build in midfield? You know, Southampton to, to Liverpool is a well-trodden path, uh, so maybe there is some sort of synergy about their approaches. And yeah, the fact that Ward Price was there in the days of, of of a lot of those players who did move to Liverpool. Um, so yeah, there's opportunities there for that, that sort of maybe getting the Champions League level club. But I would say his natural level is sort of upper half Premier League without being right at the top of the Premier League. Yeah, I would have said Newcastle, Liverpool or Spurs. Perhaps if Spurs ever move away from their rigid three-at-the-back system and went to a 4-3-3, for example, I think Ward-Prowse would fit in nicely there, depending on who, who the new manager is. He's a, you know, he's, a, he's a great player, always been unlucky to just miss out on England in England tournament squads in, in, in the past few that we've had. There's a, there's a good player there, and like you said, the set pieces make him a very attractive option, I would say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the set pieces, uh, it's, it's something that I think... Because we now, at the elite level, we talk so much about philosophies and about structure and about pressing and about keeping it compact. Set pieces are a way of sort of, I mean, I don't know how many goals World Press has scored this season, six or seven? I'd imagine but, so. You know, if, if, well, let me, let me have a look, shall I? But, you know, if, if, you, if you can guarantee sort of a, an extra, you know, 0.2 goals per game effectively, that, that's a really, really useful thing to have. Plus, Whatever assists he's got seven goals this season, yeah, in the league. Plus whatever assists he, he can create. And also there's that knock-on effect, which I think stats find hard to measure, which is if you're playing against a team that James Ward Price is playing for, you don't want to concede three kicks within 25 yards of goal. So our defenders then slightly tentative making challenges of that. Does that lead to other chances? Um and I think you saw that, you know, for instance, when when Beckham was it was was it his best, that people didn't want to concede free kicks within 25 yards of of goal when they played Manchester United and that created chances for others. So yeah, the free kicks thing, I think it's easy to overlook that and sort of see that as an, an add-on. Whereas actually it can be it can be more integral than that. Yeah. Are you calling the Southampton no chance tying up as well? I mean it's very hard for them. Uh, I mean it's, it's an obvious thing to say they're bottom and they're four points from safety or seven they games. Re- they really messed up, didn't they, with Nathan Jones? That was a period of winnable games and they yeah. completely threw it away. But you know, what do they need? Four wins would probably be enough. 
Uh, four wins would take them to uh, 35 points, I think. Is, is that right? Uh, yeah. So four wins and a draw probably would be enough. Seven games to go. It's not totally impossible. I mean, they're running Arsenal, Bournemouth, Newcastle away at Forest, which is difficult. Uh, Fulham, Brighton and uh, Liverpool. So it's not, I mean, it's not the easiest one in, but we've we've seen teams do it before. Um, the, the, the end of a season could take on a bit of a life of its own. Fulham's probably not a bad team to be playing in there. Um, yeah, Liverpool on the final day, if their season's gone to pot, uh, I think Southampton at home in that game. So, this, this is, yeah, who knows what, you know, Brighton by the end of the season, they might have a cup final, look forward to, they might already know they're in the Europa League, they're not going to be in the Champions League, they might rest players in that game. So the final three games of the season maybe aren't, aren't the worst. Going away at Forest the game before that, okay, Forest's home form is good, but Forest are a team struggling, there's pressure there. Even a point there might not be a bad result. So they're the favourites to go down, obviously, because they're bottom and they're four to adrift. But it's, it's not impossible. They stunk the place out last week. They pretty much stunk out the Premier League the entire season. Southampton, I'm going to make a big show. I don't think they'll win a game again this season. I think they're gone. That's, that's, I mean, I yeah. think they're probably relegated, but... But I've seen, yeah, you know, I've seen this twice for Sunderland coming back from positions that seemed impossible. When, yeah, you know, the season when Sunderland suddenly won at Old Trafford and won at Stamford Bridge and got a point at City and should have won that game at City, yeah, from nowhere in the final six games of the season. So it does sometimes happen that teams just get momentum and inexplicably stay up. Sunderland had deferred, though, didn't they? Southampton haven't got they not got that season. Wins. We had Connor Connor uh, Wickham that season. Oh jeez! Oh god, yeah. Jeez, Connor Wickham. Forgotten, forgotten about that. I just, don't, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I, I honestly don't think Southampton will win a game again this season. Sorry, Southampton fans. I don't, don't want to, don't want to be nasty. There's some big shouts on the pod last week that kind of both came true, actually. So we'll see what happens this week. Let's have some score predictions then, Dan. What's your score prediction for this one? Uh, I think it will be three 0 to Arsenal. 3-0 to Arsenal. I'm going to go for 2-0 to Arsenal this week. They won't throw away a two-goal lead. Jonathan? Yeah, also 2-0. Also 2-0. Let's look now at Newcastle against Tottenham. A big game in the top four race. Newcastle, you'd say, Dan, nearly there, despite a bad result against Villa last week. They're nearly there. Spurs, I just I just don't know what they're doing, in all honesty. No, I think um, Jonathan mentioned it earlier that it's... It seems to be a myth this season that Spurs are even anywhere near the top four at the moment. It feels like they're losing every week, but are still there or thereabouts. Um, and I think they're only three points behind Newcastle, although they have played one more. Newcastle, yeah, you're right. They, they look like they're they're almost there. Um, and I, I'm not sure you can look into their game against Villa that much because Villa were just sensational. So I, I don't know if they'll be too well. They will be disheartened by it, but I don't think you, you should look into that too much. Um, and I think... Being at St James's, this this looks like a game that Newcastle probably should and probably will win, um, which in the top four race probably means Tottenham don't have a chance and that Newcastle secure it. So it does have pretty large implications on, on the top four, I'd say. Yeah, last week against Villa, Jonathan, I was there. Villa honestly were incredible, probably one of yeah, the really best good. players I've ever seen seen from Villa. So I don't think, like Dan says, I don't think Newcastle should read too much into that. But a, a win here against Tottenham would, would create some distance. And you expect them to win their home games nowadays? Yeah. I mean, they've only lost four all season. I mean, that, that was the first... They lost 2 nil at City, but last week was the first... Other than that, it was the only time they've lost by more than one this season. So 
that was a, a you know, from both sides' point of view, a, a sort of a slightly freakish result that Newcastle were worse than they have been, Villa were better than they have been. So yeah, it it, it shouldn't matter. But then it's not impossible Spurs could get a point here, or I mean, it could. I can't really see them nicking it, but it, it's. You could imagine if it's sort of goalless after after an hour, there might be a bit of twitchiness there. Um, yeah, Newcastle, a bit, yeah, a bit like Arsenal, they're not used to being in this position of, of having a thing to hold. Could there be pressure? I mean, there shouldn't be really, because I think they are comfortably one of the four best teams in the country, probably better than Manchester United. So they're probably one of the best three teams in the country at the minute. But it's 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 not impossible that they, they could slip up. And and Spurs do have this weird habit of getting results despite playing abysmally. How far ahead are Newcastle, Jonathan, from where you expected them to be this season? Well, I, I think I go back slightly. This is a bit of a coward's answer, but uh, I, I am fundamentally a coward. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's... It's difficult to tell because so many of the other of the top seven have had such bad seasons that I, I think Newcastle may be a slightly better than I thought it would be. But I also think that Liverpool, as they played last season, would have finished above them. Chelsea should certainly should have pushed them closer than they have. Um, yeah, Manchester United have had a... I know they're definitely on an upward path, but they've had a pretty in and out season and yet... Newcastle are only sort of keeping pace with them. So, you know, I, I sort of thought they'd be challenging for top four, but maybe not quite getting there. And maybe they are slightly better than that, but equally they have been helped by others not really performing particularly well. Um, I think there's little things in the side that, that now you can see a future where they will be regular Champions League qualifiers. Uh, so I think Isaac has, has been better than I expected him to be. And I think that that sort of gives them a real sort of um, elite attacking option that, that that maybe they they didn't have when it was just Callum Wilson, who you know I sort of think is a useful Premier League striker, but not quite Champions League level. Um, so I, I think the impressive thing about Newcastle it, it's it's partly that that trajectory, but it's the fact that the the team building has been pretty focused they haven't really wasted money it's it's very easy when we when we talk about money in football and the importance of money in football and i, I realize this is a thing that people in my generation talk about a lot because we remember what it was like in the 80s when there wasn't these huge divides and you, you always get people going ah oh, yeah but yeah look at leicester or look at how much money chelsea spent and where they are now it's not just about money well, it's not just about money but money really really does help there's a massive correlation between where you finish the end of the season and money and what money gives you it's not so much, you shouldn't look at it in, over one season. It's that money lets you make mistakes. Uh, so we've seen that with Liverpool, that they don't they don't have the money of City and they've kept, just about kept pace with City. At least they've been able to challenge him, which is, you know, given how good City are, is a remarkable achievement. But they only have to get a couple of signings wrong and the thing looks a mess and it looks over. And so oh, suddenly we're, we're chasing Bellingham. Oh, we can't afford him. And the whole thing feels stale. It feels flat. It feels like, like golf is huge now. If you've got money, you can make mistakes. You can bring in players who don't work, and it doesn't matter. Uh, Chelsea have brought in players and made a lot of mistakes, and we'll see whether that matters with FFP and how things go next season. But Newcastle have got the money, but they've also spent it very, very sensibly. There's been a real targeted plan there, and there's a real balance to that side. And the danger when you suddenly get money, as they did, uh, maybe there's less of a danger now with FFP, but you, you get a team where you've got... I don't know, um, two or three yeah, absolute world-class stars playing with 
you know, uh, somebody who's come through the championship and, and has played two seasons in the Premier League. And that gulf between players doesn't really doesn't really work. Whereas I think Newcastle don't have that obvious divide that Isaac has come in. I think he you know, he looks a real, real quality player. But is there a massive gulf between him and, um, I don't know, Longstaff, say? No, not really. There's, there, is a, there is a gap, but it's not so big as to is to sort of be disruptive. So I think their team building speed and the impressive thing. You sort of think, well, three or four more good signings in the summer and they'll move up that level again. And given how good they've been at signing, you, you wouldn't expect those signings to, to, to disrupt them in the, in the way they could some other clubs. Yeah, I think what Eddie Howe's done that's so impressive, Dan, is that he's improved the players that were already there, the players like Sean Langs- Longstaff, sorry, Fabian Shaw, you know, players that really been any great shakes for, for Newcastle. He's improved the players there. He's kind of got that winning mentality and instilled it. They've, they have bought pretty well, I would say, over the last 12 to 18 months as well. But the biggest thing, good defensively, I know they weren't last week against Villa, but you know, across that whole season, they've done something that we didn't associate Eddie Howe with in that they've been so, so solid. There was no massive overhaul. I mean, albeit, yeah, they did make a few shrewd signings, which um, is to Eddie Howe and Newcastle's board's credit. Um, but yeah, one of the strongest points that they've had this season is is their defence. Um, it's guarded quite nicely by the midfield too. But I think it was only this week where um, Pope was knocked off the top for clean sheets um, by David De Gea, which seems crazy. But um, I think he's had 13 clean sheets this season, which is, is pretty good. And um, particularly, as you say, it's not necessarily an attribute that you kind of um, associate with Eddie Howe. Um, and obviously, you know, basics if you don't concede you don't lose um and that's that's proven the case for Newcastle um just to jump back in on on Jonathan's points though um I I, I completely agree with what he's saying um but I think Newcastle have probably just a little bit improved on my pre-season thoughts but I think the most exciting thing about them which I think Jonathan was saying too is that they can kick on from here um and I think they're going to be a really interesting team to watch over the next well, even next season, but next two or three seasons. Um, if and when they do qualify for the Champions League, how far can they go? I, th- I think it's a really exciting prospect. I've got to be honest, I didn't see them finishing top top four. I thought they'd probably be around seventh, maybe sixth at a, at a, at a push Newcastle. I didn't foresee them being even challengers for the, for the top four, if I'm being perfectly honest. But I think the good thing about that for them, Jonathan, is that let's say they were seventh, eighth, and they'd have had another stable season like they ended last season potentially teams could come in and take Bruno Gamares and, and tempt him with Champions League football because he's proved himself at the at the highest level now but because of how good they've been in that accelerated progress teams can't come in and take Bruno Bruno's there and going to be a big player for them for years to come uh, I mean I'm sure if Manchester City wanted Bruno he would go but but yes it, the, the number of teams who could come in is, is significantly reduced and, and also when they're looking to sign players and this is a problem I think Liverpool are going to have as they try their rebuild. As you know, assuming Tottenham don't get in, and they're going to have to rebuild, it's a problem they're going to have. That you know, you're shopping at Tesco, not shopping at Waitrose, because you have got your Waitrose players who want to play Champions League football. Um, and if you know, if you're a, a, a you know, a, even something like Bellingham, do you want a year not playing Champions League football? No, of course you don't. Not really, no. Yeah, that, that, that's the highest level of competition you want to play in it. Um, so yeah, you know, you're you're reducing the, the the pool of players and reducing the quality of players you can you can sign, um, and I think it's it's an interesting consequence of the fact there are now seven 
financially big teams in England that every year three of them won't get in the Champions League. I, I mean, I know there are certain possibilities where you could get five teams in, in, in five qualifiers for Champions League, but fundamentally it's going to be four. So three of them are going to miss out. And and that means that um, if you're a, 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 a European player or a South American player um, and you want a guarantee of Champions League football, do you then think, oh, you know what, maybe I should join Dortmund rather than joining Liverpool or Tottenham? Because at least at least Dortmund guarantees me Champions League football. I suspect the wages will be significantly lower, but those are two things you've got to play off against each other. Yeah, I guess for these players as well, I guess the Premier League, luckily for teams like Liverpool and Spurs, if they don't make it, the Premier League is still such a big pull that you'd be able to get players in over, over, over the legs, perhaps just by being in the Premier League and the, and the nature of that competition. But are Spurs better off just not getting into Europe at all now, would you say, Jonathan? Because they're going to they're gonna need a rebuild. They were, they were poor again. Last week, losing to Bournemouth at home is not a good look at all. No disrespect to Bournemouth. But do they just need to not qualify for anything and just completely rebuild? And I know the even Europa League, it can feel a bit of a slog. But then, on the other hand, you get to this time of year and, and you know, Manchester United, I think, do you want to win the Europa League, don't they? They're, 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 the game in Sevilla, they they want to win on Thursday night. It's an exciting thing that, that you could be in a final. You could be winning trophies. And that's what it should be about. So... Yeah, I, I can see if Tottenham get into the Conference League or the Europa League and um, it gets to sort of October and they're having to go away to North Macedonia or or Kazakhstan or wherever and, and it, it feels a bit of a slog that they might be thinking, oh, probably be better off without this. But on the other hand, it, it offers a chance, yeah, come this time of the year, to, to, to be quite exciting again. And, and would you rather be slogging away playing for playing for sixth again next season, or slogging away playing for sixth and with a European quarterfinal to play, well, you'd, you'd want the latter. Um, I, I think it's a bit different for a team like Brighton who've never been in those, those competitions before. Just getting in is massively exciting. Um, but, you know, if they don't qualify, well, you know, I think Arsenal have benefited this season from not having European competition or, or being in the Europa League, not the Champions League. Uh, I think Newcastle have benefited from not being in the European competition at all. Um, that they have been able to 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 keep players fresher, maybe have been able to prepare better for, for Premier League games. So there are some advantages, but I still think fundamentally, if you're a serious football club, you want to be in at least the Europa League. And has this end of season been a wasted opportunity for Tottenham? Because I've got to say, I agreed with Jermaine Janus on Match of the Day last weekend, where Stiolini's just doing the exact same thing that wasn't working in the Conte. There's, he's not freshened it up at all. He's not even tried to change tactics or or system. He's just wheeling out the same thing that his predecessor did. And surprise, surprise, it's not working and it's stale and it's boring and Spurs fans are frustrated. Have they missed an opportunity by not even like, bringing in someone who could have offered fresh ideas on an interim basis? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, I think when uh, Stellini got the job, I actually said on here, like, here's his chance now to... Uh, to stamp his mark on management, um, go out there. Like he's kind of got, um, there's kind of no pressure on him. He just needs to go out there and freshen things up. But it's giving off the impression at the moment that Conte is still in charge. He's just uh, been uh, sent off or something. And he's giving directions from from the crowd. They're, they're doing the same boring stuff, same, um, same layout, not creating loads of chances. And I think as a Spurs fan, you'd be massively frustrated that, yeah, the season is just going to peter out now, really. Um, and yeah, you could have got an interim manager in or even 
even someone on a permanent basis that then would have these, this period of time to plan for next season, work out his best formation, etc., work out what needs to be done in summer. Um, but instead, they've opted not to do that. And I think that it could potentially hurt them next season um, because, yeah, Stellini almost definitely not going to be there. Um, so it probably means that they'll have really to strengthen in the summer, um, which inevitably means with Spurs they'll probably start the season slowly, I'd imagine. Have Newcastle just completely usurped Tottenham now, Jonathan? Are they now are they going to stay there ahead of Spurs for the foreseeable, would you think? Well, they've definitely got a, a chance to. I mean, Spurs' stadium is still a... It's, it's the best stadium in the country, right? Yeah, I, I think. Agreed. That's a huge asset. It, it should generate revenue. But, I mean, I think the fact that it's chosen ahead of any other London stadium other than Wembley for, for the Euros in, as, a, you know, as, a, as a potential host in 2028... I think that tells you the stature of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that the, the, the selection of those stadiums is fascinating in terms of the shifting balance of power in, in English football. But at the minute, oh, yeah, no, sorry, not at the minute, but if 10 years ago you'd said the five stadiums chosen for, yes, for, for, for uh, uh, an England's, um, uh, England involved in a hosting bid, the five club stadiums chosen will be Villa, Newcastle, City, Everton, Tottenham. You'd be like, well, hang on, have the big teams all been gone off to Super League and been banned or something? <laughs> but by 2028, it could could be, I mean, I don't think Everton will be, but the other four, it's not inconceivable they are the, the Champions League. I mean, probably not Villa, but it's not impossible. I'm steady on, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly the other three could could could, could theoretically be, be regular Champions League qualifiers. And that's the interesting thing, that it's, it's sort of shifted away from from Liverpool, Manchester United. I, th- I think in reality, Liverpool, Manchester United will still be very, very competitive. I think Arsenal will feel... <laughs> I mean, when Arsenal built that stadium, when, when did it open? 2007? Uh, 2008, maybe? They would have thought that they would be the biggest and best London stadium, but it's just not now. So that is a huge thing for Tottenham. Um, but the squad just doesn't match. And I almost wonder whether that's been a bit of a problem for them. They, they've sort of felt, right, we've got a world-class stadium. We need a world-class manager. And that's led them to go for Mourinho and Conte, who have been sort of seduced by the glamour of those names rather than getting people who actually were going to gonna work and fit. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's premature to say Newcastle will absolutely, definitely supplant them because we haven't seen Newcastle in, in Europe for, I don't know how long, a decade, maybe more. Uh, let's see how they react to that. Let's see what happens when they do bring in more players. Let's see what happens if they do have a little wobbly spell. Do, do they decide to get rid of Eddie Howe? What happens then? Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions to be answered. But I think what's what's still exciting from an England point of view, or an English league point of view, is there are these seven big teams, plus Philip. Um, and there's not many and, other countries. And, and, and Reading. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's very few other countries can can, can say that. I... I I, I think there's still massive problems with the finance, financing of English football. I'd still think that we shouldn't have states owning clubs. Um, but the, there are at least seven teams. And you can't say, as, as was the case 15 years ago, there's an obvious big four and they will always qualify for Champions League and that, that wealth will self-perpetuate. 2006, by the way, the Emirates. 2006, opened. sorry. 2006. Do you, do you remember who scored the first Premier League goal there at the Emirates? No. Oh, I do. Olaf Malberg. One one draw. Olaf Malberg was the first goal scorer at the Emirates. 
don't know what that's the only reason why I remember it opening <laughs> 2006. I haven't looked it up. I just I just remember it because Villa played them in their in their first game there. Let's do the combined 11s then. Jonathan, we'll come to you first. I'm assuming yours is 10 Newcastle players and Harry Kane. Yep. <laughs> I don't even need to don't even need to do it anymore. Who were, yeah. who were, the, who were the 10 Newcastle players? Well, the only problem was was the forward line and how do you get Isaac in and Kane? So I've stuck Isaac out on the left. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, well, yeah, the problem with that is that you imagine it'd be drifting inside and that means you're asking Dan Byrne to overlap, which is non-ideal. Um, <laughs> so we, we might have to work on that a bit. But but Allenton can get forward from left side midfield. He has played that, that left wing role. So yeah, Pope, Trippier, Shah, Botman, Byrne. Uh, Willick, Gimmerish, um Sherlington, Almiron, Kane, Isaac. I think that's pretty fair in all in all. I say this this time last year, you'd have said Son not getting in a combined eleven of of, of Newcastle and Spurs. Probably Kudelski at this time last year as well. But Spurs. Well, and if Benton Coo were fit, I'd, I'd want Benton Coo in there, but he's not yeah. fit, so I can't no. pick him. Okay, what's the algorithm come up with then, Dan? I'm suspecting ten Spurs players and one Newcastle. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not massively dissimilar, um, but there are three Spurs players. It's a four-three-three: uh, Pope, Trippier, Shaw, Botman, and Byrne. Um, we've got Hoiberg instead of Willock, Gomarish, and Joe Linton, Almiron, Kane, and yeah, Son is in our. Yeah, not too dissimilar. Fair enough. Yeah, what, Isaac for Son and um, Hoiberg for Willock. Was that was that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was very close with Willock as well. Um, uh, ratings wise, I think he's just missed out. Hoiberg scored a few goals this season, in my memory serves me. He had quite a good really start nice. of the season, to be fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, him and Dyer were two players whose form I think has really dipped off for Spurs. Yeah, I mean, how Dyer got in the last England squad, I have absolutely no idea. I can't for the life of me know what Gareth Southgate was contemplating with that because he's been bang off form for ages. Uh, score predictions then, Jonathan, your go to go first. Uh, 1-0 to Newcastle. 1-0 to Newcastle. I'm going to go 2-0 to Newcastle. Dan? I'm going to go 2-1 to Newcastle. 2-1 to Newcastle. Spurs to score and it'll probably be Harry Kane. Let's face it. FA Cup semi-finals as well this weekend. Let's have a quick look at Manchester City against Sheffield United. Now, this is a bit of an unwanted distraction for Man City, Johnson. I always think oh, they'll leave Rodri out for this game. They'll leave Haaland out. But actually... Roger pretty much plays every game and he probably won't leave Ireland out, will he? He'll probably just go full tilt and win. Yeah, I, I just don't think a semi-final's ever a distraction. I know City have won loads and, and you know, whether they whether this has been a successful season for them or not <laughs> does not depend on the FA Cup. But, you know, if you're not going to take a semi-final seriously, what, don't even enter the competition. There's no point. Uh, and I don't think there's been any sign in in, in the past that, that, that Guardiola doesn't pick strongest sides for certainly for latter rounds of a cup. Um, so, I mean, yeah, from Sheffield United's point of view as well, is it a distraction for them given that, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're battling for promotion. I think possibly two or three weeks ago, you just, you might've said, yeah, it is, but now that the eight points clear uh, with four games to go. So yeah, they, they are going to be promoted and, and deserve to be, you know, and I don't think anyone here is as good as Burnley, but the, they, they have been a very, very good side this season. I've been very consistent um so no i mean no it's not a distraction uh i i, I think it's, it's very rare that a, a cup competitions are a distraction i, I think it can, it can happen for smaller sides battling relegation and it can happen for smaller sides going for promotion but realistically you want to be in semi-finals um and, and you know, both these teams there's been no dip in form in the league recently so 
I, no, it's not a distraction. In fact, it's, it's from Sheffield United's point of view, it's a thing that they're playing for. If they get to a cup final, that's a that's a massive thing for them. It's their first semi final for for thirty years, so they should go and they should enjoy it. They, they're obviously massive underdogs, but you know who, who knows if they can nick it. It could be one of the greatest results in their history. You say it's not a distraction to these teams, and I agree with you. You do always want to be in in all the competitions, but we did see earlier on in the season that Newcastle, when they had the league cup final on the horizon. He definitely changed them in the league a little bit. They did go on a little bit of a sticky patchy run around that time and they've recovered from it now, but that could have changed their season. They, they, they weren't picking up points around that point of the League Cup final. It kind of came at the wrong time in the end for them. Well, it could have done, but at the same time, you know, the, those 30,000, 40,000 Newcastle fans were in Trafalgar Square, was it a distraction for them or was it the thing they were No, they'd been for? loving life, loving life. Yeah, if you said to Newcastle, <laughs> would you rather win the League Cup or qualify for the Champions League? I'm sure they take the League Cup. Yes, yeah, the same for me with Villa. Villa haven't won anything since 1996. If I was offered top four or offered a trophy, I'd take the trophy every day of the week because I just want to see my team win something. And I'm sure it's yeah. the same for Newcastle. But it did. what I'm saying is it, it did affect their momentum at that time in, in the league. And this brings us on to Brighton, Manchester United. I kind of feel with Manchester United at the moment, they're in three competitions still. They've obviously got a trophy already in the bag. The injuries are starting to pile up at the, at the moment. The games are coming thick and fast, and they're you know they're back to Lindelof and Maguire at, at the back now. It does feel like it could have an effect on them finishing in the top four. Now, ultimately, if they win the Europa League, it doesn't matter if they finish in the top four or not because they'll still get Champions League. But you see what I mean? Where sometimes it's not distractions the the wrong word. I don't I don't know what the right word is. I'm not intelligent enough to come up with what the word on on the spot. But it does have an impact. Yeah, but I mean that's that's the nature of being good, you know. You know, if if your squad's too small, don't be that good. You won't be that good. This is this is sort of a natural handicapping system that, that football has. That yeah, you, know, you can't just have eleven great players because fatigue will build up. You've got to have a, a squad if you're going to compete in lots of competitions. I've got no sympathy for for teams that are going well in lots of competitions. That, that's what you should be doing. Um, it's their job to get a squad that can that can cope with that. So. I, I just hate the idea that you know it's this sort of very modern thing. Oh, the FA Cup's not really worth it. Well, if it's not worth it, oh, just it don't enter. Just don't yeah. you know, don't don't play in it. Play your kids from the start. Don't mess about with it. It's a, it's FA Cup semi-final. It's a big day. It's a big occasion. And the moment it stops being a big occasion is the moment that football is ruined. Brighton, Manchester United in the other semi-final. I've, t- I've touched on it there, Dan. The kind of batting out of the defence that's been a been a fi- failing defence for the last few years with, with Lindelof and Maguire. Got us to a good start against Forest, keeping a clean sheet and, and winning that game, albeit I do think they were fortunate not to give away a penalty. But Martinez in particular, they probably got used to Varane not being there at certain times, but Martinez being out for the rest of the season is a huge blow. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. And I thought in patches against Forest, the defence did look a little bit shaky, but uh, they got the clean sheet, so that's the main thing. Um, but I, I took a dive into some of the stats, actually, and, and interestingly, in the Premier League, um, when Maguire plays, they're conceding just 0.7 goals per game, which is um, a lot less than when he doesn't play, which is 1.65, which I, I thought was astonishing. Um, and they actually win more games as well. They've won 77% of their Premier League games when Maguire has featured and only 47 without him, which massively took me by surprise. Um, whether or not that is all down to him or whether... Um, the rest of the players just have to try a little bit harder when he's in the squad, I'm not sure. Um, but I certainly wasn't expecting United to be uh, more effective with him in the side. I suppose whilst they've lost two centre-backs, Jonathan, at least Casemiro and Eriksen have returned to the fray. Yeah, and I think they've been big misses. I mean, there's that 10-game 
run where Casemiro was either getting suspended or being suspended or losing seven nil, and I think they yeah he's just a very very good player gives solidity there. Um, Ericsson as well, yeah his distribution uh, I think that made a big difference on Sunday that yeah he wasn't meant to be starting the game but, but yeah sort of controlled the tempo of the game for midfield uh, having started. So, so yeah, the two of them back is 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 a is a huge thing. Brighton, I mean, they they got they got to the semis a few years ago, didn't didn't they? Brighton, I think I think I think they just fell short in the semi finals. But again, it's a chat. This is for them. They'll be delighted to be there because Brighton in the last ten years, their rise has been absolutely superb. Yeah, and I, I was at the game against Chelsea on Saturday, and that's as one side of the game as I've ever seen in the Premier League. They were absolutely. I mean, Chelsea were terrible, but Brighton were also absolutely brilliant. Press was really good. Caicedo was magnificent. Um, the two wide players, March, but particularly Matoma, were both brilliant. The fact that Ferguson's injured is is you know is a huge loss to them and really disappointing for him. Um, but Welbeck did, was the man who got the equaliser on Saturday. and He did play well, and Welbeck against his former club was a there's a certain sort of romance to that. Um, so yeah, it's I, I think this is a. Yeah, Brighton. They're not just good; they're, they're really, really good to watch. They're a really fun side, um, and pretty much every time we went forward on Saturday, they they, they looked like I think I had twenty-eight shots, mm-hmm. which yeah, for the away team against you know a, a big six Premier League team is is remarkable. How how good Kaiser? Obviously, you were you were at the game live at the work, and how how impressed were you with him? Because he's there's a chance he's going to be on the move in the summer. Yeah, no, I think he's really good. I mean, um, I, I saw him the opening weekend when Brighton beat Manchester United. I was up at Old Trafford for that game and he was noticeably brilliant in that game. And it's, I mean, this this keeps happening with Brighton that you, you're sort of watching the game, you think, who's that? He's brilliant. And then you're like, he's, oh, he's a 19-year-old from, I mean, on Saturday it was a 19-year-old from Paraguay. Yeah. And this is nine, a 19-year-old from Ecuador. And you're like, how, how have they found him? I mean, and CISO was... I, I mean, does Zerbi end up getting pretty annoyed with Enciso as lack of tracking in the last 20 minutes? But before that, he was sensational. Caicedo, I mean, he's almost the opposite. He's, he's so mature and so disciplined and so diligent. His reading of the game is so good for somebody that young. It's, it's just it's, it's hard to believe he's, he's only 19. He's, he looks like a player who's been playing for, for, for a decade and playing at the highest level for a decade. So I think he's an incredibly exciting talent. And... and I, th- I think there is this sort of this this new breed of midfielder, and I think Enzo Fernandez fits in, in in that mold, where their their tactical reading of the game is exceptional, their their capacity to win the ball back is exceptional, but they're also really good on the ball. They're really good at doing that sort of Luka Modric thing of just turning their body as they receive it, just to create a little space, create a little angle. He's one of those players you find space to say he's better than Brighton is. Is unfair because Brighton could, I mean, could be in the Champions League next season. Certainly, should be Europa League next season. But you look at him and you think, no, he's a real, real elite level player. So Casado against Casemiro midfield um, should be should be a really good battle. I mean, you talk of Luka Modric. He's rubbish. He gave the ball away three times last night. Absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Absolutely disgraceful display from Luka Modric. Jonathan, I'm presuming Casemiro and Casado are in your team. Yeah, it's not not the easiest team to pick actually. Um, no. It's it ended up being quite bright and heavy, uh, but that's largely I think because of the injuries at United. So um, because I think you need something to play the ball out from the back, I've gone for either Steele or Sanchez. I'm not sure what Steele's injury situation is. Yeah, he missed the weekend, didn't he? Uh, so he didn't didn't play on Saturday, but I don't know if he will be fit. 
Um, and he's been picked for his ball playing. But but Sanchez played a couple of great pass out to Matoma on Saturday. So he's definitely better with the ball at his feet than De Gea is. Well that's the so, reason he's been that's the reason he's been dropped. Not yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know. Uh that he thinks Steele's better, but still. So I mean maybe Sanchez can only play that that right to left pass, because that, that was the pass he kept hitting. So maybe it may be that. But yeah, either the Brighton keepers well under here purely on on ability with the ball. They've gone for a whole Brighton back four of uh, Gross, who ended up playing right back, and I assume if Feltman's still out, will play right back. Uh, Duncan Colwell, Colwell obviously missed the weekend as well because he couldn't play against his parent club, and Estepinian, who was who was really good on Saturday, and then Casemiro and Caicedo at the back of midfield with Eriksson just in front of them. Um, then March and Matoma on the wings, and because United haven't got any fit centre forwards, uh, you end up going for Welbeck. Um, but sort of thinking there must be somebody better than that, but I'm not really sure there is. Bruno can't play the weekend, have I imagined that? Well, he'd be fighting for place with Ericsson in my team. Yeah, you've, like you've, just, you've, you've just chose Ericsson above Bruno. Yeah, because either you know, <laughs> for your three man midfield, you want Casemiro and Caicedo, then it comes down to Ericsson or Bruno. I'd rather have Ericsson. And I, I don't like Fernandes wide. I'd rather have Matoma and March. So, yeah. Fernandes not out of the way, can they? Just me imagining it because you didn't pick him. That's the influence uh, you have. That's the influence you yeah, have. Well, like, maybe he is out of the that. weekend. I hadn't, I hadn't realised he was. No he, no, he won't be. He's just me making things up. Right. I think. Dan, what's the who's called team? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. Another 4 3 3, though. But um, De Gea in goal, Dallo, Maguire, Duncan, Shaw at the back. Uh, a midfield three of Fernandez, Casemiro, McAllister, and then March, Rashford, and Matoma in the front three. Is Rashford fit? I think it's debatable think whether him or Shaw yeah. are ever available at the weekend at the moment. Right. They could be, but it's not. It's not definite. They're not definitely ruled out. I don't think. Well, I might play Rashford through the middle if he is available, rather than Welbeck. But Matoma well- definitely gets in the left. Leave Welbeck in. Fair, I've, I've actually always rated Welbeck. I, I think I think he's a good, a good player. I think he's useful. He's, he's always popped up with important goals over the years when he's been fit for for Manchester United, for England, for Brighton, for Sunderland, even at times, as I'm sure you'll remember, Jonathan. Not he for Watford. That team not for Watford. At, uh, team that won three 0 at Sanford Bridge when um, Leda Manua scored the brilliant goal. Let's finish then with the just a minute section, and you really we're, are we're not doing be, um, we're not doing predictions for the semi finals. Nah, forget that. We're not. We're okay. Just, we're not, we're not, our predictions, as I say every week now, are just pointless because of Ben's laziness. Couldn't be bothered to do a lazy table. It's you know, it's, it's took away, it's took away the fun and the jeopardy of the the predictions. <laughs> so I'm gonna make, I'm gonna make a stand against who scored and not do semi final predictions this week. What's the What's the point? So yeah, quick fire previews to finish. Just a minute, and it really is gonna have to be just a minute because we are well over the clock. Jonathan, you've got Fulham against Leeds. Yeah, I mean Leeds. Although it's gone really badly recently, just before half time in the Palace game, which is well, only two games ago, everything looked fine for them. They'd won two of the previous three, they won the up, they were totally on top. And then suddenly they let in five goals and they lost six one at Liverpool. And suddenly, yeah, there's panic there, there's people saying Javi Grassi is not cut out for it. Uh so it might actually be good for them to to to, to get away from Ellen Road, to get to get an away game. Um Bamford's a doubt for them, and there's doubts as and, and uh, Dallas and Adams are both definitely out. They have only won two games away from home all season, though, uh, which is a problem for them if, if the Ellen Road crowd has turned. Um, Fulham, after five straight defeats, did lead to favour by beating Everton last week. Mitrovic still suspended for them. <coughs> Sorry, James Kazawa and Neskis Cabano are all out. Fulham won this one 3 2 at Ellen Road early in the season. 
But if we are still doing predictions, and then if we are, I'm confused about this. We are for this. Uh, I've got Fulham to win this by goal to nil. I'm going to go for 1-1. One, one. Dan? Yeah, I'm going to go 1-0 Fulham as well. 1-0 to Fulham. Dan, you've got Crystal Palace against Everton, the Yannick Balassi derby. Nice. Uh, yeah, Crystal Palace coming to this game, having won all of their last three in the Premier League, scoring at least two goals on each occasion. Um, they look a completely different side since Roy's return, and they'll be hopeful of continuing their form against Everton. The Toffees' initial bounce after the appointment of Dyche seems to be petering out with only one win in their last eight in the league. Um, they are currently outside of the relegation zone, though, but by the skin of their teeth and thanks purely to their goal difference. Uh, Palace will remain without uh, Zahar, who isn't expected back for at least another week. The same can be said for Guaita. Klein is also set to miss out for the hosts. Um, Everton will be without Townsend, um, who is still out with his knee injury, and Decore is still suspended. Uh, Coleman is also out for one more week. But this game might see the reintroduction of Dominic Calvert-Lewin, which will be a big boost for Everton, um, who is he is obviously on the cusp of returning from his thigh injury. Um, Palace seem to be on fire at the moment, um, and I think they will probably add to Everton's misery. So I'm going to go for a 2-1 win for Palace. Jonathan? 1-1. One, 1-1. One. One, one. I'm going to go for 3-1 to Crystal Palace. The Stan Collymore derby for you, Jonathan, is Liverpool against Nottingham Forest. Probably a bigger game for Forest, uh, third bottom, uh, but they are level with Everton. They're certainly not cut adrift, um, but they have only taken three points in the last 10 games after that good run where it looked like they were they were getting away from relegation. But January signings there seem to have complicated things, if, if anything. And having uh, Steve Cooper having just sort of worked out his squad, worked out how, how he's going to play, I think his, his his thinking has now become confused. Their the big problem is scoring goals. They've only scored eight in their last 13. Um, and their away form is dreadful, only taking six points on the road. Liverpool, much, much better at home than they are away. There's their eighth at the moment. So they could still get Europa League, and I guess that probably is more worthwhile than, than being in the Conference League for them. Um, they were very, very good at Leeds, admittedly against poor opposition. Uh, on Monday night but they're in the strange position where 22 of 56 goals they scored this season have come in just three games players are returning from injury Diaz could be back Bajasic and Keita are the two out Forrest got nine players out are doubtful Forrest won it 1-0 at the City ground but I think Liverpool will win this 2-0 yep exactly the same Liverpool 2-0 for me Dan I'm going to go 3-1 to Liverpool 3-1 to Liverpool and Dan you've got the Steve Claridge derby Leicester against Wolves yeah Leicester remain in free fall and have now only picked up one point from the last 27 available um, most recently on the receiving end of a 3-1 defeat to Man City uh, the Foxes occupy 19th position just two points above Southampton who sit rock bottom uh, Wolves have won their last two in the league winning to nil on both occasions against Chelsea and Brentford uh, who scored's calculated strength for Wolves is holding on to Leeds um, as they have done in their last two, and you can expect them to do the same here if they are to take the lead against Leicester. Leicester will be without James Justin and Ricardo Pereira, but could welcome Harvey Barnes back to action. Uh, Neves will return for Wolves, and Diego Costa looks like he could feature here too after recovering from a knee injury. Uh, when these sides met in October, Leicester managed a 4-0 victory over Wolves, um, and they'll be hoping they can replicate that this weekend, uh, if not the scoreline, at least the result. Um, but I think it's going to be much tighter than that, and I'm going to go for a 2-2 draw. I'm going to go for 2-0 to Leicester at Dean Smith Masterclass. Jonathan? 1-1. Uh, Jonathan, huge game. The Scott Hogan derby, Brentford v Villa. <laughs> so Villa had that run where I thought the new manager bounce had worn out and they had the, th the three games in a row where they let in four against Leicester, uh, three against Manchester City, four against Arsenal. Uh, lost all of those games, conceded 11 in those games. And since then, they've won seven and drawn one. And I think the key thing, although Ollie Watkins' goals, he's got 11 this this year, Although his goals have, have clearly been um, 
hugely important to that. But the key thing has been the defence has tightened up. They've kept six clean sheets in those eight games. Um, so they, they're only uh, three points off Spurs. I think definitely overhaul them. Newcastle might not quite be in range. But then if Newcastle do slip up, if they do tighten up on the running, then maybe they are, given how well Villa are playing. Brentford certainly should be beatable. They're, they're down to ninth. No one in the last five. Um, they've uh, had three defeats in a row. Manchester United, Newcastle, maybe understandable. Wolves, less so. Janssen and I out for them. Cash, Kachina, Kamara and Bailey out for Villa. Villa won it 4-0 at Villa Park, but I think it'll be tighter this time. I'm going to say 1-1. 1-1. I'm going to have to go 2-1 to Villa. Villa doing everything well under Emery at the moment. Dan? I'm going to go 2-0 to Villa, I think. 2-0 to Villa, although Villa have a horrendous record at Brentford. I don't think they've won at Brentford since 1947, although I can't imagine they've played too many times since then, in all fairness. Uh, I've got absolutely no derby for Bournemouth v West Ham, Dan, but that's your game. Jermaine Defoe? Oh, obvious. Come on, be better. Do better. Uh, yeah, the Cherries have won four of their last six in the Premier League and have looked to have turned a corner recently. Um, a very late winner against Tottenham at the weekend gave Bournemouth a precious three points there, which has seen them moved up to 14th place. Uh, now six points above the drop zone. Uh, West Ham sit one place and two points behind Bournemouth in the league, um, but do have a game in hand. They come into this game after clawing back a draw against league leaders Arsenal, um, bringing back a two-goal deficit to snatch a point. Um, and the Hammers did win the, res- uh, the reverse fixture against Bournemouth 2-0. Uh, the visitors will be without Jean-Lucas Scamacca, um, but could welcome back Aguerd and Obona from injury. Um, Bournemouth will be without Traore, Fredericks and junior Stanislas. Uh, both teams are trying their hardest to keep themselves away from the dogfight of relegation. Um, and this looks like it, it will be another tight encounter. But I think West Ham will be buoyed by the results against Arsenal and, and might nick this one 2-1. Yeah, 2-0 to Bournemouth for me. Jonathan? 1-1. One, 1-1. One. One, one. I didn't realise Junior Stannis last still played for Bournemouth because I was about to say... I miss Junior Stannis last for, for the derby. I can't believe he's still at Bournemouth. And that does us for this week's edition of the Edge of the Box podcast. Do subscribe with your post notifications on so you know exactly when our next show is coming. I do believe that we're doing Wednesday next week, straight after the, the big game in the Premier League of, of Manchester City against Arsenal. So, yeah, subscribe to the channel and you'll know exactly when that's coming. Thank you to the chaps for joining me. Leave a comment and give the video a like as well. Enjoy all the football at the weekend as we always do. And stay safe.